you're listening to another episode of a lady and some dudes podcast Welcome to another episode to a lady and some dude podcast. We're going to start off this segment in this episode with a grateful moment. Cal, what's your grateful moment for this week? Hey, what's going on, everybody? Good to be back with you guys. Um, my grateful moment is my daughter. Um, she was born premature. Uh, and of course, when you have, it's my first baby girl. Uh, when you have a premature baby, uh, you got a lot of worries and concerns. And one of my biggest concerns was how she was going to develop and if everything was going to go well and just looking into her eyes this week and seeing how she's cheeks are getting chubby and she's starting to stretch out a little bit. I was just grateful. And I was definitely grateful, thankful um, to be blessed with her as an addition to our household. So that's going to be my grateful moment for this week. Cool. That's nice. E, how was your, what's your grateful moment for this week? Uh, this week I'm grateful that uh, school is winding down for my children so, you know, homeschooling has been uh, a different animal and the same beast, as Kobe would say. Uh, and uh, I'm grateful because hopefully it means less emotional meltdowns by me and my children trying to help them learn the basic things. You know, not you're like, didn't I just say we were at this, we went over this, you said this answer, and now you're saying something completely different. So I'm happy that this portion of the quarantine is over. I'm looking forward to a safe summer break. Cool, cool, cool. Dion, what's your grateful moment for this week? My grateful moment for this week is that I have now added an additional title to my repertoire. Um, I will be a professor at an HBCU teaching criminal justice as well as other law-related courses. I am extremely excited about that. I think I always wanted to teach um, on some level, and now I have the opportunity to do so. So I'm really excited about pouring pouring into our young Black generation. That's great. That's great. And my grateful moment is my oldest daughter, who's a basketball and softball player. I'm actually she's winding down, slowing down, and you know, no sports at this time. So we actually her body's healing up. And we actually have time to spend together as a family. She's about to head off to college next year. So I feel like I got extra additional time with her and my two other younger daughters. And actually tone up my youngest daughter's basketball game. So that's my grateful moment. And so Dion, I want to know, before we move on to our first topic, what are you up to and what special project you want to let the people know you're doing? Um, well, I want to let everyone know doing, I started an initiative called Feed Charlotte Babies. And essentially, it was birthed out of COVID, recognizing that schools will be closed for the remainder of the year, and that we have a high percentage of students that rely on school lunch and school breakfast. And so I wanted to make sure as these students were now home and not having access to those resources that they were still um, being provided with food and snacks and whatever else they may need. And so my initial goal was to hit 50 families. Um, but as of today, I have been able to provide food for 540 families over the last two months. And so I'm really grateful for that. Um, 
want people to continue to pray for me as I continue. I do have a goal to hit 600 families by the end of May. And so that's what I'm doing. It's hashtag feed Charlotte baby. So if you put it in Facebook, you would probably see all of my posts on it. Thank you for your effort. Thank you so much. So we're going to get right into it and talk about the NFL schedule. So Kel, what are you looking at this NFL season? What got your eyes? What you want us to know about this NFL, especially your teams doing this year? Man, I'm telling you, it's a lot of things that caught my eye as far as the NFL this year. Um, number one, is the NFL going to go? You know, are we going to play football this year? That was That's something I've been thinking about. But as far as like the schedule is concerned and everything, um, of course, my team, looking at my team, I'm the Philadelphia Eagles, of course. I looked at our schedule, and a lot of people have us at eight wins, nine wins. I think we can pull out 10 wins. I think uh, our schedule is favorable, um, probably mainly because our division is not that strong. I think our division is pretty weak, which allows us to win. Um, and then I think uh, who we playing this who we playing this year, too, also, I don't think the competition is that strong. You know, year in and year out, <clears throat> you never know because teams add in the draft and free agency and things like that. But I think we have a nucleus, a strong nucleus, um, and long as we stay healthy, I think we can play with anybody. But, you know, um, as far as the, the league overall, it's a lot of, lot of teams. I want to see a lot of games I'm looking forward to seeing. I was just looking over the, the divisions, and I feel like they're pretty much no-brainers um, as far as about six out of eight, the eight divisions. I think Baltimore went out. I think Buffalo will win. I think Kansas City, of course, will win their division. I think the Vikings will win their division. And I think San Fran are one of the divisions. The ones that I don't know about and I'm, not, I'm unsure about is the AFC South and the NFC South. Um, and that's the teams, the Texans, the Colts, the Jaguars, the Titans. And then the NFC South is the Falcons, the Panthers, the Saints, and the Bucks. So it's a lot of things that, that's just that's catching my eye. There's a lot to talk about, too. But, you know, overall, um, I think my team would be successful. I like the way our schedule looks, and I'm looking at, like, 10 wins. E, what are you looking at? I know you're both Philadelphia fans. What are you seeing? So, um, get 10 wins. I think we can get 10, maybe even 11. Um, I'd be interested to see uh, how we match up against the 49ers. I think that's uh, week four or five. I do know we have a brutal stretch in the middle of the season. Uh, but – I am well, not, not the middle, kind of early beginning. We play uh, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, and Baltimore. Um, I actually don't know if I believe that the 49ers are going to repeat as division champs. And the only reason I have that is because I've noticed a trend. Teams that lose in the Super Bowl, with the exception of the Patriots, teams that lose in the Super Bowl typically have a letdown the next year. If you look at the, the Rams, they, they let down the next year. If you look at the Falcons after they blew that that lead, they let down the, the next year. Even the Eagles, when we went in uh, 05, we had a major letdown the next year. Um, and the San Francisco kind of blew up on the scene, surprised a lot of teams. I think Seattle will come uh, and take the division title next year just because I think Russell Wilson is special. I don't believe that um, um, Garoppolo is a special QB. I think he's a really good one, but I think uh, Russell Westbrook, not Russell Westbrook, uh, Russell Wilson is a special quarterback. So I think that the, 
the Seahawks will pull off that division. And I, uh, I'm interested to see what happens to the Ravens as well. Um, Lamar Jackson is a dual threat quarterback, but he's primarily a runner. I still think he has become better as a pure passer. Uh, Grateful he has the MVP. I, I love Action Jackson. Uh, but uh, Pittsburgh might might do some damage. Um, I think, I mean, those are my, my, my main uh, disagreements with Kelvin. I think everywhere else he, he's pretty, pretty uh, on, on point. Um, but I am surprised when I look at the schedule just how much love the Cowboys always seem to get. <laughs> We, you know, and and maybe maybe you know people call us haters because we're NFC East uh, teams uh, fans, but uh, you know the Cowboys. You know, every year they're they're the hype machine is is hopping on them, and they're just. I think they're a great team. I think they're a good team. I think they they got a steal in the draft, but I just don't know if they are uh, why they're always being put in big games. Some of the games are put in as like. I don't know if that if it's gonna be that big of a game. So that's my big takeaway. You are a hater. <laughs> you know that and, and like I we had a pregame we spoke pre um pre-show we spoke about the Cowboys have one of the largest fan base. They could play anybody and they will watch. So that's why, you know, but we'll get more into that. Dion, bring some hope to me about the Giants. You want you want hope or you want me to tell the truth? Uh, that because, was both, but <laughs> well, honestly, I think the Giants are looking at probably a six and ten um, record this year. I was just looking over their schedule. They have one of the toughest schedules this week. Where we play in the NFC, NFC East, which is top heavy with the Eagles, as much as I hate to say it, the Cowboys, and so. I do anticipate that our losing ways will continue, but I think even though we will lose, the team is still going to look a little different. I feel like we are in phase one of our rebuilding phase. We have a lot of great young players. We have a new coach in Joe Judge, who so far seems like he's coming in to handle business. Um, he's not here to be liked. He's trying to make sure that his team is um, – you know, up to par, in shape, and making sure that they play with a lot of discipline, which I can respect. Um, I'm also looking forward to see how Daniel Jones develops in his sophomore season. Um, he had a very solid first season. Obviously, we had a lot of lows with his handling of the football. Um, fumbles and things of that nature, but I think in his second year, um, we can expect to see improvements in those areas. And and I think I think we have a lot to look forward to, even though the numbers may not necessarily translate um, at the end of the season. Um, we will beat Washington, though, um, and we will beat Dallas at least once, and we will beat the Eagles at least once this year. So I'm just going to put that out there. Um, <laughs> now, as, as far as big games that I'm looking forward to, it's not necessarily centered around the Giants, but I feel like we have a couple of heavyweight matchups. In week three, we have the Chiefs and the Ravens. Um, 
you know, any game where you get to see um, Lamar Jackson play. And I know Evan mentioned that, of course, he's an excellent runner, but he's not much of a pure passer. I think he's solid on both ends of the ball, and I think that's what made him so dangerous last year. But there is room for improvement on the passing end, so I'm pretty excited to see that. Um, and I'm looking forward to the NFC matchup. I don't remember what week of the Eagles and Cowboys. I think those are the two, the only two teams in our division that will be vying for the, um, to come out at the top of the division this year. So I think that game has a lot of implications and maybe it might give us some early insight as to who is the powerhouse on top. Kel, you want to jump in this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I do. It's interesting because uh, it's funny that that now I'm kind of like the tiebreaker right here because Evan had one thought about uh, Lamar and Deion had a thought about Lamar too. Um, I guess I'm kind of leaning towards Deion with this one. I think uh, I think he's more underrated. I think his team uh, as a passer, but I think his team. We talking about the Baltimore Ravens. I think that um, they can they can get at least. 10, 11 wins, maybe I'll say 12. I'll be bold. I'll say 12, 12 wins in that division, even though it's, uh, they had to battle with the Steelers. But I think Lamar is going to get better. I think the team is built around his skill set, a bunch of tight ends playing up the middle of the field. Um, and I think, he, I think he's developed, you know, a lot last year. I think what happened was him being in the playoffs, um, I think the lights, uh, the expectations – Maybe he got too big for him, but I think he can play. I think he can do um, – I think he can throw the ball or uh, accuracy, and I think mm -hmm. he's a dual threat. So, I, I mean, I kind of, like, go against a lot of the critics. Uh, it was people that said he shouldn't even be a quarterback, but he should be a wide receiver. Uh, but he's a league MVP now, you know. So, you know, I kind of push back on those thoughts that he can't throw the ball, um, and he's just a – you know, he's just a one-trick pony. Uh, I don't like that because I think it's a stereotype anyway on black quarterbacks that I just don't like mm -hmm. traditionally anyway. So I feel like when you when you had that type of dominance in the league um, at that level and uh, throwing and passing the ball, then I think I had to give credit where credit is due. So I kind of push back on Evan with that. Ev. So you got to give me a little bit more than that, brother. Well, I, I think, one, the NFL is a league that catches up. So Lamar Jackson had a great year. I think I think he's a good quarterback. I, I I'm not saying I think that he is one-dimensional. I do think he's a stronger runner than he is a passer. I right. do think if you follow the blueprint and game plan, um, that you can take. Here's the thing: if you turn him into a purely a pure passer, like the Eagles did to Vic in '02 and '04. 02 and 05, then he is much more beatable. If you can take away Mark Ingram, who had a great year, and force him to and force him to beat you, especially if he had good cover corners. Now you have to have good cover corners. Mm -hmm. I think he's very beatable. And do I think he deserves an MVP? Yes, I do. Do I think he is a quality talent? Yes, I do. My thing with him is 
I think he has to hit another tier as a passer before um, I think he's a perennial MVP candidate. I mean, that's fair. I, I would say that's fair, but I'm I looking at it. He, he won 14 games last year. You know, that's, that is crazy to win 14 games in the NFL being one dimensional. I don't think that's, I don't think that's factual as far as like uh, if you, if it was that easy, you know, a lot more teams would be stopping them. So I think it's a, it's a lot more to it. I think um, teams know they try to stack the box and he makes them pay for it, you know. And uh, just because a lot of times when people are elite at things like running or passing, um, we're quick to kind of label them as one-dimensional. And I think he can pass the ball pretty well. But I just think, like you said, Ev, I do agree, he's just elite at running, which kind of deflects away from his passing ability. And I think that's what people get caught up. But there's another thing you said to me that stuck out too. Um, I kind of, I kind of think that San Fran will show the same dominance, man. You, you brought up like teams like the Eagles, and I think you brought up the Falcons. And I think if you look at those teams when they had their drop off, you got to consider that them losing their offensive coordinators too. Um, when when teams lose their offensive coordinators, that's huge. I think uh, San Fran's did a, did a done a great job with George Lynch being a uh, the GM and, and their head coach of um, just stabilizing a, a core group uh, in the front office. And it's not, it's not much transition over there for them. So I think they're going to repeat and if not do better, sadly, because they're on the same, they're in the same conference as us. So, you know, I think they are the team to be actually in the NFC. And uh, because the Bucks, I, I can't give it to the Bucks yet just simply because we just don't know. It's just, it's just unproven. You know, it's a new system for Tom Brady, even though he got a lot of experience. They brought in Gronkowski. But I think when we talk about the front runners for the NFC, I think we got to start with San Fran, man. I don't, I don't think nobody has taken that crown yet. You might have an argument for New Orleans. You might have an argument for Tampa Bay. But um, as far as like a, a, a team that didn't get better, the team that didn't, didn't get worse but got better, I think we got to go with San Fran. I don't know what your opinion is on that. I'm interested. So I, I would push back on San Fran only on this basis. I think, yes, they got better, but they didn't run away with the division. And I felt like Seattle, I feel like uh, Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson had an MVP caliber season, but they lost a lot of players along the way. And really, if you look at that last game of the season, the, the Seattle was two yards short of having the division title. And so I think that Seattle's just a tough, I mean, Seattle is a tough team. And I think that it's going to be between those two. But I also think Jimmy Garoppolo has to take a, has going to have to take a leap. And I think just, just to add on, I agree. And I can see both sides with Evan and Kelvin, but I think I have to kind of tip um, to Evan's point, Seattle, and a lot of people don't really acknowledge them for who they are, but Seattle is always a problem. And as Evan mentioned last year, they didn't, they being the 49ers, they didn't run away with that. I mean, that was literally a toss-up. And even with the injuries, and you have to acknowledge that even with the injuries that Seattle suffered. And I think this year is going to be no different. I think the game against them, I believe it's January 3rd, 
of the next of 2021, I believe, I think that game is going to be the deciding game of who wins that. I got, I like that. I like two against one. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you guys got a lot of good points there, but you know, just Russell, Russell Wilson, you know, phenomenal talent. Yeah. Um, you know, but he has to continue to make play after play after play for that team to be successful. I like teams um, where, you know, the quarterback can have all games and they still compete and they still be successful. You know, I think certain organizations uh, built their teams around that type of concept. You know, for instance, like the Eagles. And I had to keep bringing the Eagles up because – I think the concept behind like great organizations, even the even the Patriots, you think about when uh, when uh, Tom Brady went down, they think they won about 12 games that year with Matt Castle. You know, it's, it's organizations that can have success um, and not be solely dependent on a quarterback position. And I think that's what Seattle does. Uh, they play defense at a high level and everything else is Russell Wilson. So I don't know if he doesn't come with, with his A-plus game every every game that they could be as successful. So, you know, to you guys' points, I, I mean, I'm not kind of discounting them, but I honestly would put them probably top five, maybe leaning towards number three, because I, I think a lot of teams, a lot of people sleep on uh, the Saints for some reason. And the Saints, they, they set up for dominance. You know, they didn't, they didn't get worse. They got they got better. They added Malcolm Jenkins. They added Emmanuel Sanders to that team. That's already nice. So I, I kind of I didn't I don't I didn't like the free agency for Seattle and I didn't like their draft. So I don't know if they got any better. And they won 11 games last year versus San Fran winning 13. So I'm wondering with other teams making key additions and staying staying the course as far as their front office. I don't I'm wondering if I would give um, you know the Seahawks the nod over those teams that I think got better this off season. I think you're right about 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 the Saints. I think the Saints are they're just a juggernaut. I mean, they're just a tough team. The one thing I will say about the Saints, though, it always seems as they have some excuse as to why they don't pull away with it. I mean, let's think about it. Right, the year that uh, they played the the Vikings, they had the game won, and then uh, then a miracle play happens. The year they played the Rams, they had a pass interference that wasn't called. And I felt as if last year, you start to see the aging of Drew Brees a little bit. Which, to me, gives me cause for... Yeah, concern. yeah, fair, definitely. Because, you know, sometimes with, with in, in pro sports, I mean, <laughs> and this is cross-sport, but I think it still applies. Remember right before uh, Tim Duncan's last year? It was like he had a, he's had a good season, and then he just fell off a cliff. <laughs> and Drew Brees had a – I mean, he has – he put – he strung together two great years, and everyone was saying he was too old at that point. But last year, he looked old. And my only concern with him – and you could say the same thing about Tom Brady, right? My only concern with him and the, the Saints is – what will they do for me come postseason? I think they'll get to the playoffs. I think they may have a, a top three seed, top four seed. They'll definitely have home field advantage for the first game they play in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. But 
after that, I, I, I'm slightly concerned about um, the New Orleans Saints. I mean, I think I think this is a good time to transition. All I'll say is that I rather an old Drew Brees in the playoffs than an old Tom Brady at this point. Wow, that's a that's a, that's a tough transition. I hope we revisit that soon. We have to revisit. <laughs> we can't end that end that statement. <laughs> I wanted to, but I'm like, dang, Dion, you, you you hit us with an uppercut with that one. I don't know. I mean, that's 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 a, a fiery take. <laughs> I mean, okay, so last season, I don't remember where the Patriots ended off, but I had the opportunity to watch the majority of their games. Tom Brady just is not that good anymore. Mm. That defense was winning, literally winning games for the Patriots last year. It had little to do with what Tom Brady was doing with his arm. See, and this and this the only what this is why I push back on that, Dion. Tom Brady was playing with four flats. Like it was it was that bad. Like his main guy was out on injury, uh Edelman for a long time. They couldn't have any continuity at the receiver position. It just was bad. I mean, the run best running back, who was their running back? Like you don't even know who those who these guys are on his team, who their tight end was, Grunk left. It was like he was playing with nobodies. And the fact that they were winning games to me was crazy because it was showing showing me that he was managing a game at a high level. And that's why I think Tampa Bay would be successful because Tom Brady, if anything, has shown he can stay out the way enough for his team to be successful. And I think that's a that's a thing that people don't really look at, but I think we should because the quarterback position is bigger than just putting up a huge numbers. It's about maintaining um you know, depending on what your team flourishes at. And and for, for the Patriots last last year it was about Tom Brady managing the game because he didn't have a talent level to to uh, you know or the offensive power to overthrow teams like he did in the past. Right. So my question is so you said Tom Brady has become Peyton Manning of of a Super Bowl contended team because we saw that Peyton Manning was became a game manager. He was no longer the elite um, quarterback. His era. Well, I'm I'm not saying that Tom Brady is on a decline like Peyton Manning was. I think Peyton Manning has some surgeries on his arm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Tom Brady is not the Tom Brady from the early Super Bowl years. That's true. I don't think nobody argued that. But I still think he's able with that team around him, especially the addition of Gronkowski. I mean, like, that's his blanket. That's his safety blanket right there. Then you have two Pro Bowl receivers on the wing. Uh, you got another uh, high-level uh, tight end besides Gronk. I mean, he has so many weapons. He can he can be better, of course, than Peyton Manning was at Denver. But, uh, you know, uh, but I think that overall he'll be able to be successful and even put up good numbers, and he definitely won't look like Peyton Manning did even though Peyton Manning really didn't have a terrible year uh, with the Broncos, uh, but I think he'll do better than Peyton Manning does because his supporting cast is better. Yeah, I I agree with that point. Let's talk about The Last Dance, the documentary everyone is talking about around the world. What stood out to you from episode five through eight? Man, that's a good question. Uh, five through eight was, was really interesting. Um, it was a lot, a lot between every episode, but for me personally... I think I would have to go with this type of theme 
the narrative that Michael Jordan was a straight jerk. <laughs> I mean, I really, I really like that because it, for many reasons, I think Michael Jordan is getting kind of a bad rap um, because he had a lot on his shoulders and it made me respect MJ a little bit more. I think people was uncomfortable with him, uh, his teammates, but at the same time, he was a real likable, sociable person outside of the locker room, which people don't really uh, pimp, like point out. Um, see, Mike was, he had to play the role of a coach and he had to play the role of a player. You know, he had to play the role of a dad and he had to play a role of a brother. So he had a lot on his plate um, being Michael Jordan and trying to win. And I think one of the biggest points that stood out to me was one of his quotes that he said. He said, when it has a price. Uh, when he said, when it has a price, man, I was thinking like, tag, like that's real. Um, as a competitor, you know, you know, in the locker room, you want everybody to like, like you and be on the same page. But as a leader, sometimes you got to sacrifice that. You got to sacrifice being liked. You got to be. You got to sacrifice a lot of things that you know other players don't have to sacrifice uh, for the cost of winning. So Michael Jordan, he understood that, and it really stuck out to me because a lot of people don't understand that, uh, especially in this new generation that we're in. It's a lot of sensitive people, and a lot, and a lot of people not willing, you know, you know, to take a Michael Jordan stance for the betterment of the team. You know, they're more worried about their brand and being light. And I, and I find it really interesting that uh, Michael Jordan, um, you know, he didn't care nothing about that uh, to the point where six championships justify his actions. So at the end of the day, for me, that stuck out the most to me. I think people giving him a bad rap, calling him a jerk. Mm, I feel you, I feel you. E, how you feel and what stood out to you from episode five through eight? So I'm looking at a little bit broader uh, perspective. I think what I appreciated from episodes five through eight is I felt like episodes one through four demonstrated the greatness of Michael Jordan, right? It just re-solidified in the questioning mind that he is, uh, in fact, the GOAT of uh, the NBA. But at the same time, it also showed the darker elements of his life that most people um, will use in today's society and cancel culture just to cancel you. Mm. Um, and I think this is the reality. The way it's set up to me is brilliant because it's reality for many NBA stars, right? Many NBA stars, when they start off great, everyone loves them. You know, when Steph Curry was, was, was going towards his MVP seasons, everyone loved it. Mm -hmm. But then there's a transition when you go from being great to the bad guy. I remember Allen Iverson said this on the Stephen A. show, Stephen A. Smith show, where he said, everyone loves you, and then people start to hate you. And you see, you see it with LeBron. LeBron came in beloved, but after a while, people began to disdain him. And, and my disdain for LeBron, I think, is rightfully so. It's just personal uh, about, not, it's my personal feelings about how he went about his business. It's not really personal about LeBron. You see with Kobe, right? Kobe, with his situation uh, with um, the, the rape case, he goes from being beloved to being the young next Mike, to being the hated one. Um, you, you see it with Allen Iverson in his career. He was loved, then he was hated because he, he, he liked rap. He, he didn't want to fit into the rules and the stereotypes. And so I think it, it's brilliant because it, it demonstrates just the reality of what it means to be an athlete in pro sports, to come in, to, to blow people away, and then to 
people find reasons to nitpick and to tear you down. And, and, and scouts do the same thing, right? When a prospect first hits a scene, they say, oh, he's great at this. Oh, he's great at that. Oh, he does this well. But then they find that one little thing they don't like about a prospect, and they'll use that to, to diminish what they actually bring to the NBA. And so that's why I appreciate it about um, this documentary. Um, I really like how Evan broke it down, and I think that is what makes this documentary so profound for a lot of people, because we're looking at his great achievements on the court, but then there's still, like, that moment of realness where we're getting to see that he was not, I mean, we all knew this as sports fans, but the world is getting to see that he was not this perfect person off of the court, like, he was a human, he made mistakes. Um, and I think to have a good production, you need a component. You need components that are well-rounded. We need the good, the bad, the ugly. And that's what it showed. Um, one of the things that stood out for me as well was Michael Jordan's portrayal of being this super mean, terrible teammate and I think Mike in the documentary made a lot of points that we can all resonate with just as individuals. To be great at anything, in my opinion, on, and I'm talking about being great at a high level, it comes with some sacrifices. In Jordan's case, it may have been a lot of personality issues, but throughout the documentary, Michael is unapologetic about how he carried on business. He said, look, I wanted my teammates to be the best they can be. He wanted his teammates to play on his level so that ultimately the team can win, right? And I tell people, what did you want Michael Jordan to be, Mother Teresa? Like you, you wanted him to go in there with flowers and, and hold hands and sing Kumbaya with his teammates? No, the man wanted to win. And he said it multiple times throughout the documentary, I would do anything to make sure that I ultimately came out on top. And so I kind of feel like we can't fault him for doing that. Um, I don't have an issue with it. As I mentioned um, previously before, I had no expectation of Jordan being like this great and wonderful human being. As a sports fan, I wanted him to dominate on the court, which he did. And whatever came along with that is whatever came along with that. If Steve Kerr could get over getting punched in his face, why are we holding on to this narrative of, oh my goodness, he was so mean. He was such a bad guy. Look at NBA players now. The problem is a lot of leaders in the NBA today, they want to be friends with everybody. They want everybody to pat them on the back. And they want everybody to like them and invite them to the cookout. Jordan was like, forget that. I'm not worried about all of that. He had one thing on his mind, and you cannot argue with a perfect finals record, six MVPs. I mean, you take the good with the bad, is what I'm saying. Um, what also stood out for me, I felt, we all know Krauss was problematic from episode one, right? But I didn't realize how toxic this man was. Like, I, on the last episode, I called Isaiah Thomas, you know, a bitter baby mother, 
Krauss is like that toxic girlfriend that you can't really get rid of, who just makes your whole existence and relationship miserable, right? And so I remember the episode where we got some insight into Tony Kukoc. She was playing in the Olympics for Croatia. And shout out to Croatia, because they lost against the U.S. team by 33. Um, you know, they went home and went to work oh, to lose by 32 the next game. So you got to give it up for progress, right? Yeah. But Kraus makes the point that he wanted Kukoc to be the face of the Chicago Bulls. And I'm like, you have Michael Jordan on your team, and you are publicly touting and and this is no shade to tony i think he was a great player but come on man Krauss just has so many personal internal personality issues that i felt like contributed to a lot of the problems that the bulls as a franchise um had and so those were kind of the things that really really stuck out for me in those episodes I got a question for Dion and Evans too. Just uh, mm-hmm. was just crazy to me because I, I might I might be on the island by myself. That's all right though. Uh-huh. I think Michael Jordan is not the unanimous goat unless he retires and comes back. Um, I think the reason why I'm saying that is because I think he flatlined. I mean, when he uh, after that third championship. I think he flatlined. I think um, when you talk about his goal at that time was to surpass those people that he looked up to mm-hmm. or he thought were on top. Mm-hmm. And that was like Magic and Bird and Isaiah. You know, mm-hmm. these guys won the two back-to-backs. And Mike did three. Mm-hmm. So I, he kind of kind of talked about it in the documentary. He was like, listen, I was, I was burnt out. I ain't had nothing left. So I think unless he comes back with that second three-peat, he's not – the undisputed goat. What you guys think? I probably agree with you. I think I think that the second repeat really like cemented his head in Mount Rushmore as as kind of like this standard where it's like you just can't argue against it. Even though people argue against it, you have a lot of people that think LeBron is the goat. You have people that think Kareem is the goat. I mean, I I have even heard the fallacy like Larry Bird may have been better than MJ. So um, I agree. I think that second three-peat really just solidified it for everyone, really. But I'll venture out to say, because even when Jordan retired um, after the 93 season, the sports world crowned him as the greatest of all time. So it's really hard to say because I felt like for people at that time, he was already at that level and it was really nothing else that he had to do. And Jordan even said at that moment in time in 93, when he retired, he really didn't feel like he had to prove anything else. Like he did everything as far as on a basketball level that he needed to do to cement who he was. Gotcha. What you think, Ed? I don't know. I, I never really, I never really thought about it. Um, I think 
I think that I think he was solidified as kind of the goat, as Dion was saying. But I think what was important with Jordan becoming the goat, I think there are other social factors around that, social and basketball factors. Uh, one, I think that Jordan coming onto the scene, Jordan transformed basketball. And what I mean by that is basketball was something people liked. People really loved basketball. But Jordan turned a team sport into like this insular focus. Like he was just a special talent. You know, before it was it was more of a team. Like look at Magic. Magic was a great point guard. It was Magic and Showtime. It was um, Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish. It was you know, but with Jordan, yes, Pippen was his his great co-partner. He was his great uh, sidekick. He was, you know, arguably an MVP candidate the year Jordan left. But the way Jordan hit the scene was just unparalleled. I mean, it was really a phenomenon. It was like almost like. It was like Bay worship. When I say Bay worship, I'm talking about Beyonce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People just wanted to be in the building to say they saw what was going on. It was a nightly show, mm -hmm. more than just basketball. And because I, and I think the reason why, you know, people don't think of Kareem in this conversation, and Jordan has just eclipsed him. And I, there are people who think of Kareem, obviously. But the reason why Jordan was such an eclipsing figure is because he actually transformed the sport. He made the two guard a feature position in the NBA. Yeah. So, and, so, oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say, um, Evan, I think you're right um, as far as his influence, which kind of jogged my memory to another component of the episode with the level of influence that he had, and I'll ask um, Evan as well as Kelvin this, do you think he had like some public duty to um, provide support for um, Mr. Gant? Yeah, I like that question. Um, I was actually talking about that with somebody. Are you talking about far as like that? That North, he was the North, uh, was it North Carolina, right? Um, yes. Official. So I, I think Mike, you know, I think it comes down to personality at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, I really understood what Mike was saying. Mike, Mike was saying, like, I didn't want to be an activist. And then people would say, okay, well, Mike, you weren't, you weren't going to be an activist by, you know, uh, supporting this guy. But I think that's, that's just not true. When you Michael Jordan, everything you does gets publicized a lot different from the normal person. So by Mike stepping in on anybody's campaign, he's going to look like an activist. And Michael Jordan, like he was saying, the sacrifice he was trying to make was totally about basketball. He didn't have time. You know, you got uh, Muhammad Ali and LeBron and, and uh, Jim Brown and Kareem. Those guys were willing to uh, take on issues outside of their sport. Um, but, but Mike was like, listen, I wasn't that guy. Uh, so I don't really totally fault him for for that um, as a player. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you want more from 
you want more from your stars these days because the his, historically, you know, the top stars always put their two cents in in certain things as far as far as like uh, being an activist and things like that. But mm-hmm. I'm not mad at Mike for that. I think Mike Mike made a stance. He he did he did donate to the campaign, but he wasn't ready to be. Uh, looked at as an activist and I, I can't be mad at him for that even though I probably would have want more from him but I understand where he was doing and where he came from I I hear what you're saying Kelvin um and I think you do have a point I mean no one you can't demand that anyone does anything because the reality is the moment Mike public support again white people across the nation would have found a reason to hate him yeah definitely um but at the same time, let's think about Mike, not just as Mike, but it seems to be all athletes of his generation, mm-hmm. uh, with the exception of um, that two guard, that point guard, I can't remember his name, Muslim guy. Abdul. Uh, Abdul. I mean, sorry, he played for the Nuggets. Yeah, played for the Nuggets. We'll get that name. Yeah, it, it didn't seem to be their priority. Let's think about. Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley said, "I'm not a role model." Charles Barkley was throwing people outside. Oh, he isn't. <laughs> oh, he's not. He's not. I mean, he's a terrible human being. Yeah, he is. Um, but the reality is that no athlete in his generation was a activist. No basketball athlete. That is to say, I can't speak for other sports, but for basketball, uh, because. I think that they grew up after an era where they saw so much social progress that they felt like, man, this isn't my responsibility. We made so much progress, no, reason, no real reason to get involved. Whereas for Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, they grew up in an era where white supremacy was so blatant. And it's not to say that white supremacy has, you know, has gone down a stretch of imagination, but I do think w- what we have seen lately within the context of the black millennial is a reawakening towards social issues that were once buried uh, because, you know, we have bought into this lie of, some of us have bought into this lie of living in a colorblind society. Some of us bought into this lie that things are getting better. We celebrate Dr. King. There's so much progress and it's going to keep progressing. But after you see the, the, the increase of cases uh, of uh, pr- police violence against, um, against black and brown people. Uh, we have the Ahmaud, Ahmaud Aubrey situation that's still going on. Uh, we have uh, Brianna Knight was her name, who was killed uh, just this, this uh, last, last couple weeks. Um, and the, I even had a high school classmate who's currently um, on who's currently being featured for being beat by the Reading police, uh, assaulted. They were charging with assault, and he was beat by four officers. Um, I think there's been a reawakening that, oh, this is not, we are not where we thought we were. And so Mike was probably taught to sit down, kind of shut up, kind of just go about it, because I'm sure Mike went to an integrated high school. And so that was an image of progress. Why do we have to keep getting all these issues? And Mike made a business decision as opposed to a social political decision. Mm-hmm. And and I'll just add um, to what Evan said. 
in that climate, now the reason why the spotlight is on Jordan, because it's Jordan, but yeah. in that era, there was literally no, with the exception of Kareem and Bill Jabbar, yeah. there was no basketball player speaking out publicly about political issues at all, none. Not Larry Bird, not Magic Johnson, not Isaiah Thomas, no one from that era did that. So I think, um, what the public does is now in 2020 in hindsight you know everything always looks um a little better or a little clearer but you have to be in the context of that time um to really understand that jordan was doing what everyone else did right and while we would have liked to see more i think mike made it clear that he was a basketball player and he wanted to dominate the game of basketball. And that was essentially his goal. I think our climate now, which is what makes us look back with a little bit of disdain is you have athletes like LeBron James, DeAndre Jordan, um, who are very outspoken, Chris Paul, who's very outspoken about these issues. And so we have now come to a place where we're comfortable with athletes using um, their platform to do that. And of course we have Kaepernick, but I don't think that's a realistic view given where we were in the eighties or early nineties even. Y'all got, you, you both of y'all made some good points, but it's kind of hard for me to, to, to kind of overlook it, even though I understand where Mike's coming from, because that was my argument initially. But then you got people like Craig Hodges. Uh, he didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, Craig Hodges had a big time problem with Mike because there were so many things happening in the community um, and nobody was addressing it. So I think it's almost we kind of give him a pass because we like him. But at the same time, you know, historically speaking, it was almost an obligation for certain athletes with certain platform to make a stance. Um, so for Mike to just get everything, you know, he get the Nike endorsement, Gatorade, everything is looking good for him. And I think, you know, something else that doesn't make him look good into the argument is him making a statement that Republicans buy sneakers too. You know, right. when you think about those type of things collectively, um, where you got a teammate that's, that's an activist, um, and then you have Michael Jordan on record saying things like, you know, Republicans buy sneakers. It don't look good for Mike. And I, and I don't want to give him a pass, even though I understand. See, me understanding where he's coming from is, is different from me giving him a pass. I do think he should have used his platform um, a little bit different um, and, and probably just bringing a light certain issues. And just because Magic might not have did it, um, Magic did when he had HIV, he started making making statements about that community and that disease and, and, and things like that. Um, just because they didn't do it, I don't think I'm gonna just give Mike a pass for that. Well well, let me just address um, the, the comment he made, Republicans wear sneakers too. And he definitely made the comment, but I think context also plays a role. That wasn't a comment that was made publicly. I, I believe that um, the documentary, Mike spoke about this in the documentary. He made it on the team bus kind of jokingly tongue in cheek, like, you know, kind of things we would say behind the curtain but wouldn't get out and, and say publicly like at our jobs or whatever. Not saying that 
I agree with the sentiments because I absolutely do not, but I don't think that comment was made for public consumption. It became public consumption because MJ said it. Right. But Dion, you know, like I know, like we just mm -hmm. keep it in the hundred. It's a, it's a lot of truth to that statement, even though it was made, you know, it wasn't made to be public, but you get a lot right. of your feelings behind the scenes. <laughs> you know, you yeah. get a lot of true feelings when you're talking true. to your friends. So, I mean, the fact that he was on, he wasn't on record publicly, but the fact that, you know, people heard him statement, he doesn't deny that statement, says to me yeah. more how he actually felt. You know, he was about business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, like I said, I mean, I love Mike, we love Mike, but I feel like we gotta, we gotta call a spade a spade. I, I feel like he could have did more, but he made his point clear. Um, so I'll, I'll. I agree. I, and, and let me just clarify for our listeners. Um, I'm not giving Michael a pass. I'm just trying to be the objective attorney that I am gotcha. and present both sides of the coin, but trust and believe, like I am not okay with the statement. Um, I would have preferred that he make a public endorsement and I will always stand behind feeling like he could have done more, you know, at that time. Because, like, I think of Kaepernick now, and like I said, hindsight gives us a lot of context. But what Kaepernick did, remember, it was that whole era for a month or two where, I guess, white, mainly Republicans were burning Nike sneakers. Do you guys remember that? And when they started to do that and started to protest Nike, um, Nike accomplished sale numbers after that that was through the roof. Like they, their profit margin went crazy, right? So it just goes to show just stand, you know, if you stand firm in what you believe in, yeah, you're going to have people that aren't going to like it but you're gonna have strong support of people um, who support the sentiments at that time. And, and I think while Jordan would have lost a few um, clear people who stand on different sides politically, um, I, I think he still would have had overwhelming support. Like I, I have seen KKK guys on, on Facebook pictures wearing Jordans. Are you kidding me? <laughs> You know, so. Hey, can I go to a lighter subject, though? It was crazy, though. I, I, I want to make one thing before you go off. Oh, my bad. Go ahead. Do you, do you think that Jordan's not Republican himself? <laughs> That's a good question. I, 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 he probably I is. He probably is. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. I don't, you, you could check. You probably could just Google his uh, <laughs> That's his public record, but... <laughs> I doubt it, though. I doubt it. I think we would know if he was. Yeah, I, I, I kind of feel we would have known, but I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, it wouldn't necessarily surprise me, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I think my point behind the statement is, I don't know how many billionaires um, are behind an ideology that necessarily is going to do things to mess their money. I'm not giving Jordan a pass at all, I but I think Jordan Jordan isolated himself and, and thought himself in, in a lens. I'm a basketball player. I make my money. I'm a businessman. He doesn't think 
about you know maybe politics as much as we would think mm-hmm. and and two i think it's also also possible and then we, and then we go to your lighter subject it's also possible that jordan wasn't fully informed about all these political issues and he probably may not want to speak out speak out and say something stupid he's gonna regret kaepernick right. was aware of everything that you know yeah he, Mm-hmm. It was different. It definitely was different. All right, so listen, I want because that's a different subject. I think we can go half an hour on that. My light moment, right, of five through eight, I think was was crazy. Was uh, the Gary Payton moment? Yo, that was <laughs> yo, that one was epic for me, man. The Gary Payton moment was epic for me. Um, <laughs> I know everybody got something on there, but 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 for me, I think that that moment was just it really showed me who Mike was. You know what I'm saying? Like the fact that you know people can read body languages. We we know that. You know you can read body languages. When Michael Jordan heard that little statement from Gary Payton, he thought that Gary Payton was out of his mind. He thought Gary Payton was delusional. He just bust out laughing. Like usually you. You would you could tell if somebody think somebody think the statement may be partially true. They might they might uh, smirk or they might they might get angry by it. But he flat out just bust out laughing, and I thought that spoke to to Mike, competitive and belief in his game to a whole nother level. Because he he thought like he said, I had no problem with the glove. <laughs> and when he said that, I was like, yo, I, I don't know if I laughed that hard the whole the whole five through eight. I mean, one through eight, but when he said, after he bust out laughing, then he said, I had no problem with the glove. I thought that for me, that was like, yo, Mike, Mike's status is on a whole nother level, man. He had no respect for competition. None. Hands I'll- down, that, that was one of my favorite moments. When I told you I laughed out loud, like I literally cackled in my living room and it's just so funny because when they're interviewing Gary Payton, he is just so into this interview. He's like, yeah, man, I went out there and I locked him down. And, you know, I wasn't going to let up. And Michael Jordan was exhausted. Like, he was so into it. And I was like, okay. And like you said, the way that Jordan just dismissed it and, and like, laughed out, head tilted back, everything, that <laughs> was like I was completely through and then what made it even worse outside of him saying I have no problem with Gary Payton um he goes on to say oh I just had other things on my mind at the time like are you kidding me Jordan is is a savage exactly savage I think that's the best word for it what you thought about that one man I mean I thought that one it wouldn't surprise me if Michael Jordan was burning on the inside when he was laughing about how much he wanted to go play Gary Payton right now. Because Jordan <laughs> had a sick way of motivating himself. Mm-hmm. But two, I mean, let's just be honest, right? Let's just be honest just from a basketball metric perspective. Michael Jordan was 6'6", 220. Gary Payton was 6'4", maybe maybe 205, maybe 210. Jordan was stronger than him. He was more, more, more physical than he was. Gary Payton couldn't stop Michael Jordan. I mean, he could he could throw off throw him off a little bit, but it it was hilarious. And you know, part of me was kind of laughing, like, and back to what Dion said, he was serious. He was like, "Yeah, man, you know, I could have, I could, I think I could have." And Jordan was like, "I want to slam this fool." 
And so it, it's amazing to me just looking at how great Michael Jordan was. And yeah, it was it was hilarious. I want to ask a quick question. What about the Kobe moment when Kobe said that without Michael Jordan would be no Kobe? And this since you know the accident. I mean, have have you seen Kobe play? Kobe emulated his whole game from his mannerisms down to Jordan. Like Kobe, and I always say this, Kobe is Kobe is baby Jordan. Jordan 2.0 is all Kobe was. So when Kobe said that, I believed every word. Because even watching Kobe play, I was like, this is just another reincarnation or continuation of Jordan. And some people may not agree with me, but I, he emulated his whole style, everything he did after Mike. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's fact. And I think I think that one, even when you looked at uh, Jordan's remarks in the documentary and it, at his funeral, you saw how much Kobe leaned on Jordan to kind of get all of his secret inside, inside information. How do you do this? How do you do that? He was almost a picture image playing style of Jordan on the court. I mean, um, <clears throat> I think Mike could say probably the same thing about other players too. I don't really think it was that, you know, that big of a deal that Kobe said that. Um, I just feel like that's what we do. That's what I think basketball players do. You look at somebody you model after, um, and then you try to grow from their game and evolve your game. I think Mike was looking at Dr. J and uh, maybe somebody else, Oscar Robinson might've named and, you know, uh, LeBron looked at somebody, AI looked at somebody, Kobe looked like somebody, but Kobe did on another level. I will say that. But hey. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, he did on another level. He was like, he was obsessed with Mike. But, uh, you know, I, I just feel like I really like it because Kobe just paid homage. And uh, a lot of times, you know, people got a, a lot of hate in, they, hate in their bodies this, these days, man. And a lot of people don't give out respect. There's respect is due. So I was really, I was really uh, impressed by Kobe because Kobe doesn't really give too many people props. Kobe's a savage too, since that's the word of the day. So Fair when he man. when he gave Kobe, when he gave Michael Jordan a nod, as he should, because he he did everything from the way he put his knee his hands on his knees to the way he chewed gum. It was it was a, it was an obsession with with Kobe and Mike, but I feel like everybody should be paying homage some type of way. So I just think Kobe was doing what, what he should have did naturally. Yeah. Besides that too, like the walk too, y'all gotta admit, like it was, it was kind of ridiculous. Every time he would win, he would do the, the fist bump like, like Mike did. I mean, it got so bad. If you Google it, you can see Kobe sticking out his tongue <laughs> 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 playing through the game. So it was, it was bad, but I, I do love the fact that he gave respect and paid homage. That's missing a lot of time. Oh, absolutely. And and my thought process on that is if you're going to emulate someone, emulate the greatest, right? Thanks. Thanks. Um, so the the fact that Kobe elevated his game or modeled his game after MJ and the majority of um sports fans put Kobe at number two, you know, and obviously there's a lot of debate with that. But the fact that he's there top three in the goal conversation every time, I mean, 
I think that that says a whole lot. Like you would never hear a documentary in, in 20 years that someone modeled their game after James Harden or Russell Westbrook, you know? So. Tag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, inter what's interesting to me though is that it came off to me that Jordan was the love. I don't think Kobe ever got the love Jordan got uh, as an individual. It felt like jo Jordan was obviously for Knicks fans like like uh, Phil. There was there was disdain for him because of what he did to your team, but at the same time. I think most people still had this homage, this gratefulness, this, man, this is amazing, special we're able to see. Whereas with Kobe, it didn't feel like until the end people started to like him. Um, but I think, honestly, I think Jordan was more savage than Kobe. Because I feel like Kobe got into the Jordan, Jordan imitation to model as a part of it, as opposed to it being all naturally, authentically Kobe. That makes sense. I don't know. It's kind of a weird statement. It felt like he was more playing a role than being who he was. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, and and I and I agree. But I but to Kobe's point, um, to Kobe's credit, I think he developed into who he was towards the tail end of his career. Because at first he was just trying to emulate everything about Mike, just being obsessed with basketball, um, lock himself in the gym, don't have to have no friends. You know, he wasn't friends with his teammates, his own record, um, got into fights just like Mike. But towards the end of Kobe's career, he started trying to be himself. You know, he started start being a mentor for, for uh, players around the league, started being more personable, sociable. So, I mean, I did like the transition because, Ev, I do think you're totally right. At first, it was an obsession. He just was a mimic, a clone. But then Cole became his own man. That's why I really start liking him after that. I agree. I want to end off with one last question. When were you and what were you thinking when MJ retired the first time? As for me, I was so happy. I, I felt nostalgic. I was like, finally, we're going to get this ring. And of course, we didn't. <laughs> Well, I will say when he retired the first time, I was eight years old, and my love for sports actually came from my dad. And my dad, who was a Bulls fan, funny enough, even though we're New Yorkers through and through, he was obviously very torn up and broken about it. And so because I was only eight, I was also torn up and broken about it because my dad was. Um, looking back now, being an adult and being able to properly reflect, um, I think I would have felt the same way just for the game of basketball. For me, basketball is more than just my team and, you know, what my team is doing. Because if that's the case, I wouldn't be watching basketball being a Knicks fan today. So, um, Jordan leaving the game of basketball, just the thought of that, I'm pretty sure that I, I, I would have been pretty distraught about it, um, you know, even though that would benefit my team, and it ultimately didn't, but, you know, who's, who's keeping score? But 
um, I think the impacts on the game is greater for me. So I, I, I would have felt the same way my dad did. E, how about you? Well, I was five. And um, I, the magnitude didn't really hit me. I was, ex I, I thought it further solidified Michael Jordan as a goat because he would play baseball. Okay, he might basketball and baseball. But that was the, the, the gist of my thought. Uh, now looking back, I probably would have been devastated. I mean, I was upset when Kobe left, right? And he was like on the tail end of his career. I can only imagine how devastated I'd be if Kobe left in the prime of his career. So, yeah. Kel? Yeah, so, yeah, it was crazy because I, I never think thought about that that question before. But, man, it made me a bandwagoner. <laughs> like, like Mike, watching Mike, I was just naturally a Bulls fan. It's like, it's like kind of how everybody developed to be Cowboys and Lakers fans that grew up watching sports in the nineties. So if you, if you grew up watching a basketball in the nineties, you was watching Chicago because they played all the time. So I had to hurry up and find a team. And now I realized that after Mike retired, I became a Houston Rockets fan. <laughs> so I got, I'm publicly admitting that I was a bandwagon guy, but I was young. So it was all right. So what Mike did for me was he made me uh, try to, had to find a new hero. So I, I had to find somebody else. I had to find uh, Hakeem and my guys, Kenny Smith and all those guys from, uh, from Houston. But it, it, it took me to, you know, a search. Cause now I was like, man, who in the world am I going to watch? Cause Watching Michael Jordan was what you did. So I had to go find somebody. So it turned me into a bandwagon. I, I hate to admit that, but maybe we can edit it out. So, And to be fair, Kevin, to your point, uh, this is the last thing I'm going to say, the Sixers had just traded Charles Barkley. So there's nothing to watch in Philadelphia. Exactly. <laughs> there was nothing to watch for us. Nothing. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, look, can we make the same argument? There ain't much to watch in Philadelphia uh, now. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we was doing good this whole episode. <laughs> On that take, I was 18 years old. And when my thoughts of the Knicks will finally win, it never happened. And that ended everything as it ended this episode. So thank you for joining us. On this episode, A Lady is Some Dude podcast. We thank everyone. Please show your support. Merch is soon be coming out. And thank you. Have a good day and God bless. <laughs>